Let me uh, read for us from John chapter 14. Jesus talking to his troubled disciples, or he's comforting his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, how can we know where you're going? How can we know the way? We don't rather... Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will, he will, and this is where the, uh, the, this is one of the, the challenging verses that you're going to be looking at. Uh, there's various ones during the year. And so that's the context of what he said, Jesus has said so far is the context for the verses we can especially focus on. So back to uh, verse 12. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Let's pray. Oh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' words here. Please help us to understand and to get their true significance. And please help me to speak as speaking the very words of God. For we ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I uh, start my uh, talk, I'm just going to pick up the thought that Peter started with about how we know God's word is true from cover to cover. I appreciated that start because I don't know if you remember, I came with you uh, sometime last year and we looked at we had a sheet of paper that had two sides to it with different colours on it. And that covered from Isaiah chapter 41 to 48. And God was arguing with the people who were going to go into exile, how do they know that they've got the real deal? How do they know that they have the living God? 
Do you remember that time? Raised up, right? Didn't I do it with you? No? Well, let me tell you. God only has one argument over eight chapters. And he's like a barrister in those 41 to 48 of Isaiah. And he builds a case and he only has one argument to prove that he alone is God. Do you know what it is? You can't do it, but I can. You can't do it, but I can. You can't do it. Twelve times. You know what it is? Just one thing. You can't tell the future. I can. Get that solid in your thinking. Because Jesus picks up exactly the same principle in John 13 and later on in John 14. Let me, uh, so this is still, this is bonus, this is sermon number one. You're going to get sermon number two in a second. Let me have a look at, let me read to you John 13 verse 19. This is worth memorising, by the way. John 13, if I got it right, John 13, 19. I am telling you now, he's actually referring to uh, what, what Judas Iscariot was going to do. He's speaking the future. John, let's go back a verse. I'm not referring to all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But this is to fulfil the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now Jesus first says, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. You get that principle? God always does that. He always says ahead of time what he's going to do. Did it with Abraham. Said, oh, by Abraham... This is what's going to happen with your family over the next 400 years and they're going to go into slavery. Da, 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 da. He gives them the full deal. God has a habit of saying things ahead of time and he does it for a reason. He's showing that he knows the future and he is actually going to bring about the future. That's the argument he develops in Isaiah 41 to 48. But Jesus uses that same principle here. How do you know I'm the real deal? I can tell what's going to happen. In fact, what is going to happen has already been foretold. So when God says something, it is going to happen. 100%. Every word of God proves true. Isn't that lovely? Now, he repeats, just in case you missed it, he repeats the same principle in chapter 14, verse 22. 9, 9, 13, 19, 14, 29. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. We are word believers. Jesus uses works belief as well, miracles. But the word believers is based on the fact that he alone can tell the future. Isn't that lovely? It's brilliant. It's, it's noble me, I feel lousy in the morning, and I think, is God really there? Yep, whether you like it or not, he is there. He is rock solid. It just lifted my whole faith, a whole, you know, we're dealing with reality. Isn't that lovely? So how do you know that God, we've got the real deal? Only God can tell the future. And Jesus used the same. How many times did he tell his disciples ahead of time what was going to happen to him? At least three. 
This is what's going to happen to him. And then he spells it out. They're going to, and he gives the details of, you know, they're going to mock me and spit at me. And, you know, he gives the full details. Why? Because that's God's modus operandi. He always tells the future. And that's how we know that we have the real thing. Why well, we can believe his word. All right, now to our passage today. John 14, sermon number two. Here we go. Let's see if I can keep it short. All right. What happens when the future suddenly seems empty? What happens for you when the future suddenly seems empty? It'd be just like what the, G- the disciples were facing. Jesus is leaving. He's been warning them ahead of time, I'm going. They've committed the last three years of their life, whole as everything, they put everything in, and they've been following him, and you can imagine them looking at him and uh, saying, and he says, I'm going. And they look at him and say, but where does, that just leaves the, the, open, the, the, the future just like a big fog. You know, where do we go? What's going what's to happen? You can imagine all the questions, the anxieties and difficulties that will flood their minds. Who's in charge in this unhappy situation? How is it all going to end? How, is, how important is this one leaving? Is he going to become irrelevant? Is, is Jesus going to be important still? We've given everything to follow him, but if he's disappearing, what's life all about? What about God the Father? How does he fit into this whole foggy mess? And won't life be worse with him gone? Not having Jesus physically present? And will we have any relevance at all? There's just... And finally, how will we operate? How can we accomplish anything with him gone? The last two questions are the ones that are answered in our difficult bit. But we need to firmly grasp the context of 1 to 14, the first uh, 12 verses so that we see and get more clearly we're able to interpret them the last difficult ones so look at verse 1 with me the disciples are troubled and Jesus knows it isn't that nice? he knows it because he says do not let your hearts be troubled anywhere in scripture where you can see the people were afraid and the first thing the angel says to them is fear not because they're already troubled. You don't say that, don't be troubled, to somebody who's having a good time. You say that to somebody who you know is troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. So when you're troubled, what's the first thing you need to remember? The first thing you need to remember is who is in charge. Very important. So what Jesus says, you believe in God? Believe also in me. Keep looking to, relying on God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Keep trusting the Father and the Son. God the Father and Son are in charge. Principle number one. When everything looks foggy, guess who's in charge? Isn't that lovely? It's interesting that Jesus cuts right to the, the important priority thing first. And note, Jesus leaving doesn't make him irrelevant. 
rather just as relevant and important as the Father. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's putting them both on the same plane. Jesus leaving doesn't make... You see that? It's not like Jesus, well, I, I was, I'm gone now, it's all over. It's like uh, Elijah and Elisha. Elisha. Elijah's gone, Elisha's new, new bottom, Elisha's forgotten. No, not in this case. It is God the Father and God the Son are both to be looked to and depended on. So, what question does Jesus hit next? To encourage them, Jesus spells out the future, as he usually does. But he spells it out of how is it going to end. You know when you're going to run into... Say you're doing a marathon, you're running into a fog. It's good to know what's at the other end. And so that's the first thing Jesus hits. My father's house has many rooms. And this is Jesus' promise, promise that never fails, a promise that you and I need to believe. My Father's house has many rooms. If that, that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. If Jesus is going... This is the most not going verse you can imagine. What's Jesus emphasising here? I'm going to, I've got a place getting ready. Great, got a place. But I'm going to come and take you to heaven. Does he say that? No. I'm going to take you to be with me. Heaven would be a boring without being with Jesus. The one who is going to be leaving shortly in the disciples' view going to be with me but then just to emphasize the point of that withness i'm going to come and take you to myself and that where i am to pray for a place for you and i will go and prepare a place for you and will come back and take you to be with me so that and this is the repeat so that where i am you may be also it's a long way of saying just one thing you're going to be with me and you're going to be with me Lovely. The emphasis is being with Jesus. The one you're looking at who's talking to you, you're going to be with forever. That comforting? That is a fantastic hope. Something to look forward to. Notice how personal and relational is this final destination. No longer separated from Jesus. To introduce his next point, how important it is, how important he is in the whole scenario he makes a teasing statement to extract an anticipated reaction because if Jesus is going is is he going to be relevant anymore alright so that's sort of um, the the background to it and so he says and you know the place where I'm going do we? we? they all look at each other and uh they know he's going, but where to? Or So, Thomas, my namesake, actually I'm only a Tom, not a Thomas, but however, my namesake takes the bait. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? I like his logic, very clear. You can hear the strain in uh, Thomas's statement. And then Jesus obliges by helping them to see that their focus on him is not wasted, because Jesus says... 
Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Your decision to follow me is not wasted, even though it it looks like it with me going. And one of the things that's so important as Christians is how that we understand how important Jesus is in God's economy. What's the Father's focus? The Son. Always has been, always will. What's the Son's focus? God the Father, glorifying the Father. The whole universe is for the Lord Jesus. The Father and the Son have made it so. Through the Spirit. It's, that really helped me figure out, you know, in the Ecclesiastes frame of mind, which I often am, is what's it all for? It's all for Jesus. He is the reason God has done it all and done it the way he has done it. So Jesus going, he's telling his disciples, that doesn't make me irrelevant. I am actually the centre of God's plan. Now Jesus alludes to the next thing that they need to understand in verse 7. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's a real teaser, isn't it? What's it likely to bring? What? It's a a bit of bait. And so Philip takes the bait and says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And here Jesus now brings in the relevance of the Father. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you so long, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe in me. When I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, and then note this a little bit, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. What did Jesus' works do? Jesus' works had the effect of proving who he was, that he was God. He argued that continually, and you'll see it in the Gospel of John, with friend and enemy. How do you know I'm the, I'm the Messiah? Look at what I do. So where does God the Father fit in? Well, Jesus explains that, that all, all he has been saying and doing is actually from the Father. That's how he's been operating this whole time, in union with his Father, abiding in his Father, and the Father abiding in him. Mutual indwelling. That's a hard thing to get your head around, but it's an important one because we're also involved in that, as you see in the next, um, the rest of John 14. We are also in the Father, and the Father is in us by his Spirit. That's the very next thing that comes on after this. So this mutual indwelling is the way, in fact, God is in himself. But now Jesus is going to leave them and Jesus wants to encourage them in this transition. Because with Jesus no longer on the scene, you think, what what do we do now? What's what's, what's happening? 
It's kind of like Moses handing over the work to Joshua. Or Jesus is about to leave them and go to the cross and, and uh, the grave and then back to his father. They are going to take over the ministry. That's a huge change, isn't it? That's a big transition. I'm going, guys. It's over to you. Go, whoa. That's... Um, and so verse 12. And Jesus wants to encourage them through this. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me, and that it's not just you disciples, but he now makes it universal for all of his followers down through the centuries. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Points to note. Jesus' followers will be doing works like Jesus. Just as Jesus was given the words and actions that God the Father enabled Jesus to do, so will those who believe in him will do and say what Jesus enables them to do. It's actually Jesus who's going to be doing the work through each individual. That's how it's all possible. That they could do even greater things. That's the, the how. Jesus is going to be doing it. He's going to be individually with them. They are at the next stage in God's plan. It's transition time. How big a transition? Moses to Joshua is a fair one. Moving into the promised land, they've got the, the promised land has got uh, privileges that they didn't have before. And what kind of privileges do the, his followers now have? They're going to do even greater things. Jesus wants them to know that that with him gone, inverted commas, they will be extremely important and even more effective than he. They will be reaping where he has sown. Like that? But will the disciples ever do greater works than miracles? For example, if you just think works as only miracles... Will they do greater miracles than Jesus? Is that what Jesus means here? Not really. They do do many that are parallel. They didn't walk on water. They didn't stop the storm. Paul, you imagine when he's being, you know, in a storm raging around, he didn't say wind and waves. He could have. Do you think? Didn't occur to him. Why not? Because he's not God. That was the reason that we need to understand what the reason is for miracles. The role of miracles as evidence that God is supporting the words of the messenger. That's going to apply both to the apostles as they begin their ministry, but it came it was especially so in supporting who Jesus claimed to be, to be, in fact, God in the flesh. He needed to have miracles that stacked up with that claim. And he, and he did. That's why he said back in uh, earlier in verse 11, um, the works that I have been doing are the, um, believe on the evidence of the works themselves that, that Jesus has already been doing. So if you think through the book of Acts, a lot of the miracles that they did in the book of Acts were what Jesus did. 
closely at verse 12 again. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Taking that last bit first. Going, Jesus going to the Father via the cross marks a transition in the gospel storyline, a major change. The curtain will tear. There will be a new qualitative difference in the ministry, the works of the disciples. Qualitative. Their ministry now is even better than Jesus's. From the completed ministry of Jesus to the time of reaping the privileges of what Jesus has accomplished. So yes, the disciples um, in Acts did great works spread geographically, but the commentators, as I read through them, agreed that the geographical spread was not the main way that the, the works and words of the disciples were greater than Jesus. It was that Jesus' work on earth had been done and they had the privilege of reaping the fruits of Jesus' sacrifice. In this sense, the things his followers will do are greater than what Jesus did. They are the next stage in God's plan. And it will include similar authenticating miracles, which of course the apostles needed as they go into Acts. How do we know, with Jesus gone, how do we know that what the followers are, are the real deal? God gave them and Jesus gave them miracles to authenticate them. So it would be very encouraging to those disciples, which is what Jesus was seeking to do. He was trying to encourage them. Life won't be worse with him absent physically. And he's going to go on and emphasise this later on. They and we will be very relevant as reapers for Jesus. They will be harvesters and the harvest. So, final question. How will they operate... How can they accomplish anything with with him, with Jesus gone? By operating in exactly the same way as Jesus did with his father. Again, abiding in him. We'll hit that in John 15. Living in close harmony with Jesus. How did Jesus live? He lived to please and bring glory to the father and relied on the father continually for his direction and enabling. Jesus' disciples are to operate in exactly the same way by continually bringing our requests to the Father. Because Jesus goes straight on from verse 12 to verse 13. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. How are they to operate? Continual prayerfulness. And note, who is still with them and acting on their behalf? I will do it. Jesus is doing it. Isn't that lovely? He's not far away at all. In fact, he's now got the advantage that he can be with every single one of us, every single one of them, to accomplish the things that Jesus wants to do through them. 
responding to their prayers. And he didn't, so we're not automatons as such. He puts us into uh, difficult situations. What do, we have to, what do we do when we're in a difficult situation? Help, 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 help. I've been working uh, in Tasmania for the last two and a half weeks, helping my daughter renovate. We had to rip a bath that was half sunk into the floor out as heavy bath. So she and I lifted that out. That left a hole in the floor. Had to put in new floor joists uh, with hardwood and no nail gun. And um, then we had to put a sheet of timber that exactly matched that hole. And then we had to cover that um, so that it was level because in the bathroom you've got to be level. Then you've got to put down an AC sheet. And then you're going to rip out all the walls and... Guess what I'm doing every morning? It's just love. Because every time I think, oh, how am I going to do this? Lord, help. And it really struck me how similar it was to what I'm sharing with you now. That's what the Christian life is. It's Lord, help in everything we face, be it little or big, whether it's witnessing to somebody or to uh, me getting up to speak or whatever. In fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we're to use our gifts each in that with the help and the power that God provides. So he who serves, let him serve with the strength that God supplies so that, you like this, God may be glorified through the Son. Isn't that lovely? God enables us, God gives us gifts, but he does it in a way that means we are dependent on him continually and he ultimately then rightly Correctly, I don't want the reward. I have the privilege of being part of it, but it's God who actually does it. And he receives the, the credit. We work and we speak and do works that the Lord has prepared for us to do. We sang that earlier from Ephesians 2. In prayerful dependence on his enabling. And that's where we pray all the time. We ask Jesus. We get to... Um, asked both the Father and the Son. We're used to the, um, the pattern of just speaking to the Father. That's already been mentioned in John 14. We know can only get to the Father through the Son. We come to him with our prayers. And it's interesting that we can direct, pray directly to Jesus, though the general pattern, as I've said, is coming to the Father through the Son. It's also interesting that the one who will do it, Jesus is the one who's going to do it. What's the two requirements in this prayer? Firstly, we're to ask in his name. And what that means is in alignment with his purposes and will. We don't always know what God's purposes and will are. But when we do, we can confidently... In fact, John says it in 1 John 5. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, writes in his first letter, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask... We know that we have received what we have asked of him. Asking according to his will in alignment with God's character and purposes. 
So asking for help and helping Sharon doing her uh, renos was exactly what God wanted me to do. And asking for help to understand this passage was exactly what God wanted me to do. And does God help? You better believe it. I go, whoa, that was lovely. Wow. And we completed every single task that we'd set before I left Tassie. And I had five minutes to spare at the end. It was lovely. <laughs> I got to the airport with dirty hands. <laughs> and then found out the plane was delayed. But it was either way. We pray. We live in a... That's what the Christian life is. It's dependence on the Lord Jesus to enable us. The disciples needed to be encouraged that Jesus is going to actually enable enable them as they walk closely with him to do the work that he gives us to do. It would be a bit unfair, wouldn't it, if Jesus gave us Jesus gave us jobs to do, work to do without the ability that would be kind of crass but he does it in a way that helps us to understand that the way we get the grace to do what he wants us to do is pray in his name in alignment with his purposes and plans and all ultimately for the glory of God the Father let me pray for us oh heavenly Father we just thank you for the way Jesus is so understanding. Thank you that he gives us the big picture how it will all end. Thank you that he shows us the relevance of the Father in all of it, how the Father and Son relate, and then how the disciples to operate without him being physically present but being spiritually present with every single one of us. Enabling us and uh, enabling us to live by praying continually. Lord, help us to be good at doing that and giving you the glory. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.